yes, that is our house band doing Dick Dale. Good job, that is my man Slick Rick on guitar, shredding it. Welcome, welcome everybody to another episode, another song from, another track from the Treehouse Lounge. It is I, your host and friend and buddy and MC and DJ and selector here with you once again with a massive show. You can probably tell I'm pretty excited. (laughs) Man, because we got a lot to talk about today, so I'm just going to jump right into it. I finally pulled out The Beatles, okay? The Beatles live at the Hollywood Bowl. Now, this is a very important record from my collection and very important part of my life one of the things that has happened that has brought me here to this day and that was my mom buying this record back in 1977 when it was released of a Beatles live recording from 1964 in Hollywood okay when I was about let's say seven years old my mom and stepdad had a record collection that was combined. They went through it, they got rid of a lot of crap, and what was allowed to happen was my sister and I could throw the records around, we could smash the discs, whatever. But they still kept a selection of what they thought you know, was gonna be good, even though nobody used the record player anymore because it was probably broken. So. When I was 16 years old, I was just down in the basement and I discovered this cache of records, which is where my collection started. This collection started this collection that we're hearing right now. The thing was, I was 16. There was albums there that I had not heard of. uh, I didn't even know existed and had not been reproduced on CD which was you know the medium that I was using at the time so unlistenable stuff unless you had the wax right okay and we're talking in this collection the stuff that I found and I was old enough to know you know what was good and what I wanted to hear it was the Beatles it was Neil Young Jimi Hendrix Santana others okay I guess one of them even had a picture disc copy LP of the soundtrack to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which is pretty cool. So I found these records and I said to myself, I have to hear this stuff, but how? Okay, because we didn't have a record player. My mom didn't have a record player anymore, but she's like, I think your father took it, you know? So I was like, dad, walk one with the record player. He's like, yeah, I have, you can have it if you want. I don't care. It worked. The needle was, you know, a nub, but I didn't realize and, and it worked and I didn't care. So I still had the Sony speakers from the original entertainment setup that my mom and dad had from like the 70s or whatever. All I needed was an amplifier. I realized. So what did I do? (laughs) I went and bought one. I went down to the pawn shop district of Winnipeg, Ellis Avenue. At 16, alone, really not wanting to be seen walking around the mean streets carrying a piece a large piece of electronic equipment you know either someone was gonna think i stole it or someone's gonna try to jack me up for it anyways it was all good i found a really nice kenwood amp for like a hundred dollars which was all the money i had 
And then I could finally listen. And you gotta remember too, you gotta think, there was no MP3s yet, or they existed, but I hadn't heard of them, you know? I didn't hear about MP3s until probably the year later when my friend Paul was like, yo, check out this CD. There's like a hundred songs on it. I was like, get the fuck out of here. I don't know what you're talking about, quit lying. He's like, no, it's real. It's, it's a new file format. It's called MP3. Each song is a file. I was like, I don't understand, but I believe you because he played me the CD in his car, you know, and we skipped through 100 tracks. And I was like, wow, this is a revolution. But we weren't there yet. There was no iPods yet. So records became a thing because, like I said, you could hear tunes that were not available anywhere else at the time. And you could find used records for like a buck, you know, or the, the most you would ever pay. I was paying $5. I paid $5 for the Clashes, uh, given enough for, you know, and a great copy in great condition back in 1999 or whatever it was before the, before the vinyl re-emergence happened in the, uh, I guess, well, whatever, I guess in the 2010s or so, start of that decade. Anyways, that's the story of this collection. If you were wondering, how does he have all those records? You know, like, what's going on? Yes, <laughs> for years and years, for decades, I've been collected. But it all started with uh, what my mom and stepdad Brent had put together. So big ups to them for having good taste and realizing don't let the kids smash these ones because we might want to listen to them again someday. And we will be listening to them on the show because I still have them. They still exist. So what do you think about that? Huh? Okay, enough about me. <laughs> More about the Beatles. This band, the most influential rock group of all time. I think almost everyone will agree with that statement. Formed in Liverpool, England in 1960. Best-selling music act of all time. 600 million units sold worldwide. Wow. This, like I said today, the, the, the album we're listening today is a live recording from 1964, played through the lounge's speakers here, re-recorded, and put into your ears through my setup, okay? So it sounds a little rough and compounded by the fact that there are 17,000 people in the crowd screaming at the top of their lungs towards this bowl, which is then, you know, reflecting that sound right back to this crap 1964 live recording equipment. Thing about this record is, and if you, if you want to check out the album art, the recording engineer talks about it, how difficult it was and how horrible these recordings were from 1964. Then in 1965, the Beatles came back to Hollywood Bowl and they did some more recording with some better equipment. But it wasn't until like 10 years later that they, the equipment was good enough to upgrade these trash recordings to release a record. And if you want to get the whole story from the engineer, uh, you got to check it out. Check out the album artwork on the Instagram page. The song that I've chosen for us today the 10, 12, 15 or so tracks that are on this album. I'll give you a quick uh, readout of what the tracks are. 
Twist and shout, she's a woman, dizzy Miss Lizzie, ticket to ride, can't find me love, things we said today, roll over Beethoven, side two, boys a hard day's night, help, all my love and she loves you, long, tongue, long tall Sally. Three of those songs that I just read were covers. All three of them are American acts, all three of them are black, okay? Think about what it meant when the Beatles and the British Invasion came to America and were performing in segregated America, segregated schools, and they are paying homage, this, this soon-to-be greatest band of all time are paying homage to these legends of rock and roll. The Isley Brothers, Chuck Berry, and Little Richard. Uh, emphasis on Chuck Berry and Little Richard, extra emphasis on Chuck Berry, who I am going to talk about more after the song, okay? This is Rollover Beethoven, which is, once again, Chuck Berry is the father of rock and roll, like created, almost single-handedly created the genre. And he sang in one of his biggest hits, Rollover Beethoven, tell Tchaikovsky the news, get out of the way, here is the new sound, it's called rock and roll. I guess, somebody named it that. Remember that part in uh, fact, Back to the Future where um, Michael J. Fox is, is ripping Johnny B. Good and then someone gets on the phone like, yo Marvin, like you gotta tell your cousin about that new sound he's looking for. That's talking about Chuck Berry. Johnny B. Good was sent into space on that Voyager spacecraft on that golden record, uh, which I think Carl Sagan put together. So, you know, pretty high praise there. Bob Dylan said that Chuck Berry was the Shakespeare of music, okay? So let's hear the Beatles cover Chuck Berry. Let's hear, I think, uh, John Lennon shredding this intro in front of 17,000 screaming fans in 1964 and 1965. One thing I want to say here is Chuck Berry ripped off this riff from another guy called Louis Jordan, okay? Who was like around in the 40s. So holy smokes, man. I'm just gonna play the song.
So that crowd noise was going on the whole time. Man, people just losing their minds. Okay, now we're gonna talk about Chuck Berry because I don't have any Chuck Berry records. So this is the time. While still in high school, while still a high school student, he was convicted of armed robbery. Him and some friends went out, robbed three stores, and then tried to uh, carjack someone, I think. We got, got arrested and got locked up in reform school for three years. Chuck said the gun uh, wasn't loaded. <laughs> I have to read this guy's biography, by the way, because this is crazy. But I'm gonna try to give you uh, try to give you the the facts here. After he got out of reform school, he worked in an automobile factory. He was had been playing music uh, when he was in high school. He'd been playing music when he was in jail too. Even actually, his apparently his jail band was so good that they let them out of jail to go perform, you know, outside for whatever events. Then Chuck met a guy named Muddy Waters and he went to Chicago and that ended up having his first single, Maybelline, released on Chess, Chess Records. Then he popped right off, okay? Then, then Chuck and rock and roll were the scene. And here is some more information from some guy. By the end of the 1950s, Barry was a high-profile established star with several hit records and film appearances and a lucrative touring career. He had opened a racially integrated St. Louis nightclub, Barry's Club Bandstand, and invested in real estate. But in December 1959, he was arrested under the Mann Act after allegations that he had had sexual intercourse with a 14-year-old waitress named Janice Escalante, whom he had transported across state lines to work as a hat check girl at his club. After a two-week trial in March 1960, he was convicted, fined $5,000, and sentenced to five years in prison. He appealed the decision, arguing that the judge's comments and attitudes were racist and prejudiced the jury against him. The appeal was upheld, and a second trial was heard in May and June 1961, resulting in another conviction, but a, a three-year prison sentence this time. After another appeal failed, Barry served one and a half years in prison from February 1962 to October 1963. So convicted under the Mann Act, which was passed in 1910 and made it a felony to engage in interstate or foreign commerce transport of any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose. This bill was later amended twice because of the, the muddy language, you know, immorality or debauchery is totally subjective. Whoever is in power will be able to say, yes, I'm offended by this or not. So after all that, uh, Chuck's image and reputation really suffered. I, I think he, his, his creative juices were kind of crushed for a bit. 
but at that same time in the mid 60s his music was starting to be spread further through uh, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles and the Beach Boys as well. Chuck had a crazy life. He had tons of legal problems. He he did, you know, bad things that he admitted to. He was accused of doing bad things that he denied. He was in and out of jail. Um <laughs> he was just a person. He was fallible. And I'm not going to make any excuses for him. I'm only trying to share the music with you. So with that knowledge having been shared, I will leave you today. <laughs> and I will be back tomorrow for more tracks from the Treehouse Lounge. Each one, teach one, baby. See you tomorrow.